Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa sallallahu wa sallam wa baraka ala nabiyyana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in amma ba'd My dear brothers and sisters, salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu So we're continuing on with the Kitab al-Zuhad wal-Wara' from Bulugh al-Maram and it's actually the last three hadith of the book so alhamdulillah we're completing this chapter now um, As I've mentioned previously, the objective of this chapter and this book is to reframe the way that we think that every single action that we do, we want to approach it as is this beneficial to my akhirah? Is it harmful to my akhirah? If it's harmful to my akhirah, I'm leaving it. If it's beneficial to my akhirah, I want to pursue it. So that is the frame of mind that we're trying to develop and that is the objective behind this chapter. So Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar rahimahullah, he continues with the next hadith. قَالَ الْمُعَلِّفُ رَحِمَنَ اللَّهُ وَإِيَّاهُ عَنَ الْمَقْدَامِ ibnu Ma'di. رضي الله عنه قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ما ملا ابن ادم وعاء شرا من بطن اخرجه الترمذي وحسنه ذات المقدام ابن معدي رضي الله عنه he narrates from the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that the child of adam has not filled a vessel more evil than their stomach so this is the version that al hafidh ibn hajar rahimahullah brings but it is part of a longer hadith and the longer hadith actually states مَا مَلَأَ إِبْنُ آدَمْ وِيَعَنْ شَرًّا مِنْ بَطْنٍ بِحَسَبِ إِبْنِ آدَمْ أُكُلَاتْ يَقْمِنَّ صَلْبَهُ فَإِنْ كَانَ لَا مَحَالَ فَثُلُثْ لِطَعَامِهِ وَثُلُثْ لِشَرَابِهِ وَثُلُثْ لِنَفْسِهِ That the Prophet ﷺ said, The children of Adam have not filled a vessel more evil than their stomachs. It is sufficient for the children of Adam to eat just a few morsels in order to keep their back straight. But if that is not possible, then they may eat a third for their food, a third for their drink, and a third for their breathing. A third for their breathing. Now, just to, to change up the, the mood in this, uh, in, 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 the, in the class, one of the things that's very important as a teacher is to make sure that you're always implementing the things that you're talking about. So last week, when I looked at this hadith, I'm like, man, Super Bowl is on Sunday. How do we implement this hadith with the Super Bowl coming in on Sunday? The good thing is we'll, we'll cover that issue in, in particular. Like, oh, is it, does this hadith mean you're never allowed to eat till you're filled? Or does this mean that it should be avoided the vast majority of times and you're allowed to eat it uh, to your fill sometimes? That's something I will discuss later on. But since covering the hadith last week, it was an objective of mine to make sure that I'm implementing this hadith at least for this week and to continue to use it as a reminder. And that was like another issue that we... Uh, always tend to forget that Islam is always about being reminded. There's no individual that is perfect. There's no individual that's free from mistakes. And when we do make a mistake or we do forget, it's always good to get these reminders. So don't think that, hey, I've heard this hadith already. I already know about it. But let's take it as an opportunity to be reminded. And inshallah, we will be learning something new as well. We will be some learning something new as well. So here the Prophet wasallam. He's talking about the etiquette in relation to food. And this is in particular to how much Muslims should actually be eating. How much Muslims should actually be eating. Now why would the Prophet ﷺ be addressing this issue? Why is it relevant to a Prophet of Allah ﷻ who came to teach us religion in terms of how much we should be eating? And there's multiple answers to this question. Number one, is that Islam is not just a religion, it is a whole way of life. It is the way we live our lives. So it conducts not only the way we are in the masjid, but also conducts the way we are in our, in our homes. And it wants what is best for our dunya and for our akhirah. It wants what is best for our dunya and for our akhirah. And this is what we see in this hadith. 
Number two, is that there's no piece of advice that you will find from the Prophet ﷺ except that it will have a religious tangent to it. That there's going to be some sort of religious angle to it. And that's what we're going to come to see in this hadith. That when the Prophet ﷺ is talking about filling the stomach, it's not about obesity, it's not about diabetes, it's not about you know, heart disease or cholesterol. Those are all there, yes. Those are there from a medical perspective. But the Prophet ﷺ brings this hadith to us from the angle of the impact that it has on the state of your heart. The impact that it has on the state of your heart. So I want you to think about in the month of Ramadan, you haven't eaten the whole entire day. If thought time comes, you eat till you're filled. What are the next couple of hours like for you? It becomes very difficult to come to the masjid. It becomes very difficult to pray taraweeh. And what's interesting is that even those brothers that believe we should be praying 20 rak'ahs for taraweeh, after 8 they're like, khalas, I'm done. You know, there's a concession, let me leave. And that's not a fiqh concession that they're taking. It's just like, eating too much, I can't handle it anymore, let me leave. Now I want you to think about an individual whose stomach is filled and they're bloated. The, the Imam is reciting emotional verses from the Quran. Are they going to be able to cry? They won't. Because your emotions get completely numbed when your stomach is full. An individual that is meant to be reflecting upon the Quran, what the Imam is reciting, are they going to actually be able to reflect? No, because eating too much, it numbs the mind. It makes you very lazy. And therefore you can't reflect even on what the Imam is reciting. So this is the angle and approach that the Prophet ﷺ is coming from, that our worldly actions impact our religious actions. Our worldly actions impact our religious actions, so be very conscious and careful of them. Now the Prophet ﷺ, he's very explicit in this hadith, he says a vessel more evil than the stomach. That the believer has not filled a vessel more evil than their stomach. Now why is the stomach called evil. Now here the Prophet ﷺ doesn't use the term evil in terms of in comparison to good and evil, but he's using it in terms of a vessel that can cause more harm to you than your stomach. That if you look at you know all the things that I mentioned previously in terms of the medical issues that are related to overeating, that is just the medicinal side of it. But also look at, is the, at the religious harm that it causes. So that is what the Prophet ﷺ is referring to that when this vessel is considered evil, not because it's evil in and of itself, but what overeating can cause in terms of harm to a person's body and to a person's religion. To a person's body and to a person's religion. The Prophet ﷺ obviously lived at a time where resources were not plenty. In fact, time and time again, the Prophet ﷺ is having to go out in the middle of the night to search for food. So why is the Prophet ﷺ making this such an important point? So when the scholars discuss this, they mention two things over here. Number one is the fact that when you have scarce resources, it actually makes you more greedy, right? So a person only has a limited amount of food, there's plenty of people, they want to eat as much of it as they can. So here the Prophet ﷺ is saying that you have to fight off that greed. And this is what this hadith is talking about, fighting off that greed. But number two, it's addressing a frame of mind that is going to come about. Because the Prophet ﷺ in other hadith, he talks about how the ummah will become very prosperous, how the ummah will become very rich, and they will have a lot of resources. 
So this is a warning for them as well that when you do become prosperous and you have those plenty of resources, make sure that you do not forget this. Make sure you do not forget this. So it is a warning to his people that when there is scarcity, control the greed. But it is a warning also to future generations that as prosperity becomes um, more mainstream, then make sure you control that level of greed as well. You control that greed level of greed as well. In this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ also shows us what true zuhud looks like. So zuhud generally is, is, is translated as asceticism. But we translated it for the virtue of this class is something that is not beneficial to your akhirah. Zuhud is to abstain from something that is not beneficial to your akhirah. So a lot of the times when you think of asceticism, you may think of, you know what, asceticism means to abstain from it altogether. But here the Prophet ﷺ is showing us that asceticism is not about refraining from things altogether. It's about doing them in balance. It's about doing them in balance. So the Prophet ﷺ did not mention, you know what, abstain from food altogether. The Prophet ﷺ says, your first priority is eat just enough food to keep your back straight. If you feel you need to eat more than that, then this is how you should be dividing your stomach. A third for food, a third for drink, and a third for breathing. A third for breathing. So that is what the Prophet is showing, is that you have to have balance. What we also learn from this hadith, is that the Prophet is going to show, is showing us that there's multiple levels to the way that people will approach matters. And this is something that Ibn al-Qayyim expands upon. He says there are three types of people that eat. There are three types of people that eat. Those that eat for survival, meaning that the person is literally on the verge of death and they're eating because they need that food to survive. Then those that eat to suffice, because this is a human characteristic, we all need food to survive. So in order to retain that function, in order to continue worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they eat. And then you have category number three, those that eat out of luxury. Those that eat out of luxury. And I think in our times, very few of us, at least in our community, are from category number one, where they're eating to survive. That they're literally on the brink of death and they're eating to survive. Some of us, inshallah, we hope are from category number two. And category number two being, as a human action, you need, in a, you need food to survive, to function, so you're eating that. But the unfortunate reality is a lot of us will fall under category number three that will eat out of luxury, eat out of boredom. And this is like, you know, if you've ever seen a receptionist's desk when you go into an office, there's always like candy or chocolate there. If you always look behind it, you'll find a whole bunch of wrappers. It's usually the receptionist that's eating all the chocolate and the candy. But why does that happen? It's because people are eating out of boredom. Hey, nothing to do? You know what? Let me get something to eat. Or you know what? I'm going to go and watch TV. Let me bring some food with me so I can eat while I'm watching TV. I'm doing something on the computer. Let me have something to snack on while I'm doing this activity. So we're no longer eating for the sake of eating. It becomes a pastime activity as we're doing something else. And this is perhaps one of the most dangerous things when it comes to actual eating. Is that people aren't mindful of their eating. Eating is meant to be considered an act that is done in isolation. And by isolation meaning that's all you're focusing on. We're meant to eat as a group, but we're meant to just focus on the eating itself. And the reason that is, it allows your mind to process and see how much you're eating, what you're eating. But it also gives it an opportunity to, you know what, I think I've had enough. So that's something that we'll discuss in a little bit inshallah. The actual sunnah of eating. The actual sunnah of eating.
What I also wanted to share with you is that this is something that is actually found in the Quran itself. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kulu washrabu wa la tusrifu. That eat and drink, but do not be wasteful. Do not be wasteful. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that you're allowed to eat and drink, but don't do so more than you need to. Don't do so more than you need to. Now, one of the statements I wanted to share with you from Al-Hafid ibn Rajab rahimahullah is in relation to the hadith of the Prophet which is narrated from Abdullah ibn Umar where the Prophet says, Al-Mu'minu ya'kulu fi ma'inin wahid wal-kafir ya'kulu fi sab'ati am'a And this hadith means that the Prophet is saying that the believer eats in one part of his stomach or will eat in one share of food, whereas the non-believer will eat in seven parts. The non-believer will eat in seven parts. So Al-Hafid ibn Rajab rahimahullah, he goes on to say, Al-Murad anna al-Mu'min ya'kulu bi'adab al-shar' fa ya'kulu fi ma'nin wahid. Wal-kafir ya'kulu bi-muqtada shahwa wal-shar' wal-naham fa ya'kul fi sab'ati am'a. So he says that the desired meaning from this hadith is that the Prophet is saying that the believer eats in accordance to the rulings of the Sharia. What the Sharia dictates, that is what the believer tries to practice. Whereas the disbeliever, because they have no Sharia, because they have no legislation, they will eat according to their desire. They will eat according to their desire. And therefore they eat in seven parts. So what we extract from this is that even an activity like eating will have Sharia guidelines behind it. Will have Sharia guidelines behind it. And what we want to look at is what are those Sharia guidelines? What are those Sharia guidelines? So as a group activity, why don't we do that? Let us try to go through some of the Sunnah activities or the virtuous things that people should do while they're eating. So I'll start us off. Obviously before you start eating, you should say Bismillah. The Prophet has told us that whoever says Bismillah before they eat, then their qareen, their shaitan, will have no share in that food. What is the second etiquette that we can get? You have your hand up? Eat with your right hand. Excellent. So the Prophet says, eat with your right hand, for indeed shaitan eats with their left hand. Excellent. So we should be eating with our right hand. What else? Go ahead. Have space for water. So we learned this in this hadith. You shouldn't just fill your stomach with food, but leave space for water and for breathing. And then you should eat from that which is near to you. So often when there's a spread or you're eating from a big vessel, people want to go and grab and reach the, the, the juiciest part or what they think is the best part. Yet the Prophet ﷺ has taught us, you should eat from that which is close to you. Do not go out of your way to grab that food, to expose your greed, but rather eat from that which is close to you. What else? Starting from the outside of the plate and moving towards the center. Excellent. So if you're eating from a larger vessel, you should be starting from the outside and move your way in, and move your way in. And the Prophet ﷺ encouraged us in that very hadith to complete their food because we do not know which part has the barakah in it, which part of the food has the barakah in it. So you start from the outside and then you move your way in. Tied into the previous point, starting from that which is close to you. We're missing another point which is indirectly been mentioned. Don't talk a lot. Don't make noise. There's no explicit hadith about that. 
But I think that is a, a general rule that when people are hungry and you know you distract them from eating, that's not necessarily a good thing. But you are allowed to talk. There's no hadith or ayah in the Quran that says you're not allowed to talk when you eat. I know my parents when I was young, they tried to scare me all the time, telling us that you're not supposed to talk when you eat. Um, maybe when your mouth is full, you shouldn't talk, that's not polite. But in terms of actually having a conversation during dinner time, there's nothing in the Sharia prohibiting that. Yeah? It's more of a question. I'm from Bangladesh and they say like, if you're having a meal, somebody comes and gives you salam, you're not supposed to return it. Is this just a made up thing? <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain the qiyas behind it. So when, when someone is praying, you're not encouraged to give salam to them, correct? And then when the time for salah came, the Prophet ﷺ told us that if the time for salah comes, you know, delay your salah if the food has been served. So food has already been served, prefer finishing your food before you go for salah. So some people understood from this that, hey, if we're not supposed to give salams in, in to someone that's praying, then also someone that is eating, you shouldn't give salams too. This is what we call a false qiyas, and there isn't any validity to do that. In fact, you enter upon a group of people, even if they're eating, give salams to them. And you know, don't be offended if they don't respond to your salams, because they are busy eating. But your obligation is still to, to give them the salams, inshallah. Any from our sisters? What are etiquettes from the sunnah in terms of eating? There's one big one that hasn't been mentioned. Wash your hands. Wash your hands, good. So the Prophet ﷺ encouraged the washing of the hands when a person wakes up. And in certain hadith, we find that the Prophet ﷺ would wash his hands before he ate. Now, just hold on, I'll get to you guys <laughs> The washing of the hands, is it purely for the sake of washing the hands? Or is it only if there's something on your hands that you feel needs to be washed? A lot of people have this misconception that it is sunnah to wash your hands before you eat. It is only sunnah to wash your hands before you eat if you feel that there's something on your hands. Any form of impurity or any form of bacteria or something of that nature. However, if you feel your hands are clean, then it's not sunnah to go and wash your hands at that time. Excellent point. What else? Yeah. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Thanking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after you finish your food. So the, our young brother, he mentions the dua from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa which is praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we should be learning as well. I'm still looking for that one thing. We're still missing one thing. So the way that you sit down if you're sitting in a, in a group. So there was a particular way that the Prophet ﷺ used to sit down. It's almost like a half tashahud. So one leg is completely folded behind you and one knee is up. That is how the Prophet ﷺ used to sit, as is mentioned in the Shama'il of Imam At-Tirmidhi rahimahullah. We're still missing that thing. That, we'll get to that as well. What were you going to say? Don't waste uh, the food. Don't waste the food. So we mentioned that already, that we should finish and complete the food. Then Abdullah mentions not blowing upon the food, not blowing upon the food. Imam At-Tirmidhi rahimahullah, he narrates from the Prophet sallallahu that do not blow upon the hot food, for it may take away from the barakah of the food. It may take away from the barakah of the food. So therefore a person should wait until the food has cooled down and then eat from it rather than being hasty and blowing on the food. Now I will mention the point that I was looking for, eating as a group. Eating as a group. The Prophet ﷺ advises us where there is food for one, there is food for two, where there is food for two, there is food for three. So here the Prophet ﷺ is encouraging us to share our food. In fact, Abdullah ibn Umar took this so personally that if you study his life, it was never found 
never found that he would be seen eating alone. That if he had food, he would always invite people to come and eat with him and he would give priority to the orphan children. He would give priority to the orphan children. Anything else that we're missing? What have we missed? Yeah? <laughs> Don't make a mess while you're eating, have some manners. That's very vague, but I, I think that makes sense. I, I'm trying to find a hadith that we would, uh, you know, apply to that. But the Prophet ﷺ does tell us that cleanliness is a part of faith. So don't make a mess while you're eating. Any way to hold the food? So this is something interesting that Sheikh Al-Bani rahimahullah talks about. That are you allowed to use utensils to eat? Are you allowed to eat utensils to eat? So understand that utensils were not very prominent at the time of the Prophet And that is why those utensils were not used. So Sheikh Al-Bani rahimahullah was of the conclusion that it is a, a cultural practice either to eat with your hand or to eat with the utensils and you can go either way. Traditionally, what has been mentioned, particularly in the Hanafi Madhab, is that it is actually sunnah to eat with your hands with the three fingers, your, your thumb, your index finger, and your middle finger, making a, you know, like almost like a ball and eating it like that. Again, this is something that is disputed, and I believe this is a matter of flexibility, uh, that you can go either way, that can go either way. Yeah, go ahead. Halal food, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. That's very true. I mean, a lot of times we overlook that, right? We're like, food is food. But clearly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to eat from that which is halal and to eat from that which is tayyib. And I actually want to take a moment to, to talk about this. So, let us qualify what is tayyib first. I'll get to you. I don't want your arm to get tired. So I'll come back to you, inshallah. Let us talk about that which is tayyib first. Tayyib is that which is nutritious. Tayyib is that which is nutritious, meaning that it has nutrients, it has vitamins in it, and it's good for your body. And halal, it means it meets the requirements in order for it to be consumed. It meets the requirements for it to be consumed. Now, is the origin in food that it is haram until proven halal, or it is halal until proven haram? It is halal until proven haram. That is the origin in food. That is in the origin in food. So any fruit, any vegetables, uh, any seafood that you find, it all falls under that category that it is halal until proven haram. The exception to this, according to the majority of the fuqaha, is the issue of meat. Is the issue of meat. They said that the issue in meat, the foundational principle is that it is haram until proven halal. It is haram until proven halal. The hadith that they use for this is when the Prophet ﷺ, and this may actually be a very new concept to some people, that if you send out a hunting dog, and that hunting dog comes back with an animal that has been hit, that has been like hit, it, it's dead now, and comes back with that animal. But you're not sure, did you hit that animal? Or did it die by itself? Or did someone else kill that animal? Here the Prophet ﷺ said not to consume that, not to consume that animal. So the scholars of fiqh derived from this that you know what? The origin in meat is that it is haram until proven halal. It is haram until proven halal. Now there's a lot of responses that go back and forth. And you know we can just debate this all night and all day. And people will still have their cultural biases. That even in our community, you'll find certain segments of our community are fixed. That no matter how much evidence you bring to them, they're like, we're going to do this. Other segments of our community, 
they go to the exact opposite extreme and they're like, you know what? If it's halal, I will consume it, right? And then everything gets consumed. So the most common question again gets asked is, hey, can I eat McDonald's? Hey, can I eat Burger King? Hey, can I eat Wendy's? Or any other fast food that's out there. Now, people get so focused on the halal aspect, we're completely ignoring the tayyib aspect. We're completely ignoring, is it actually good for you? So just because something may be halal, it does not make it tayyib. Do we agree to that? So now if you understand this concept, that is the answer that needs to be understood. That, you know, research this issue within them itself. Is this meat halal? Even if you come to the conclusion that it is halal, you know what? It may not necessarily be what is best for me, and therefore it shouldn't be consumed. So now in terms of Muslim ethical standards, what Muslims should be striving for is to actually get the bihak slaughtered and cut halal meat that is organic, free from pesticides, free from chemicals, that is grain and grass-fed. So if it's chicken, it's grain-fed. If it's beef, it's grass-fed. And that is the best type of meat that you can aim for. Right? That, is what you, that should be the standard that we strive for. So inshallah, that is something to, to keep in mind. So our brother that said halal, very good. Our young brother over here that had their hand up. You'll be the last one. Go ahead. Sorry? Eat the right food. What does that mean? Give me an example. What is an example of the right? Of other animals? Jazakallah khair. So an animal that has consumed other meat. Well, I'll come to you in one second, inshallah. So our brother mentions, you know, do not eat uh, pig meat uh, and, um, you know, eat uh, that which is halal. So that was something that was previously mentioned. Is it directly related to this? Because I want to take questions at the end. Of course. That is a completely separate issue. Yeah, yeah. So as in, I'll leave that for the question and answer session, inshallah. I'll leave that for the separate question and answer session. So those are some of the etiquettes uh, in terms of a believer, in terms of approaching food. So if you were to quickly go through them, saying Bismillah, eating with your right hand, making sure you're not overeating, making sure you share your food, eating from that which is close to you. If your food is hot, do not blow on it. Um, and then making sure your food is halal. Those are like the, the, the big ones that we've mentioned. Um, and I think that's all I wanted to mention about that hadith. We'll move on to the next hadith. And this is the second hadith where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says, An Anasin radiallahu anhu qal, qala rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, kullu bani adama khatta wa khairul khattaeen at-tawabun, akhrajuhu at-tirmidhi wa ibn majah wa sanaduhu qawi. So Anasin radiallahu anhu, he narrates from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, where he says, each and every one of the children of Adam will make mistakes. And the best of those that make mistakes are those that turn back in repentance to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Are those that turn back in repentance to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what we will look at over here is different wordings in the sharia. So what is the difference between a khati'ah and a ma'siyah? How do we differentiate between the two? So the way we would differentiate between the two is a khati'ah is a sin that happens where a person intentionally does something but they haven't premeditated that sin. They haven't planned out a process of committing that sin. Whereas a ma'asiyah is something that is premeditated. You will plan out that sin, how you will do it, how long you will do it for, what it will entail, and there's a big process behind it. So here the Prophet ﷺ is talking about those sins 
that will happen just as a result of being human. Just as a result of being human. And each and every one of us is going to be prone to them. Each and every human being will make a khatiyah. It is unavoidable to not make a khatiyah because that is the human experience. So to expect perfection from anyone, particularly from our children, is completely unrealistic. It's completely unrealistic. And then number two, the Prophet ﷺ is also showing us that there's categories between sinners. There's categories between sinners. Not all sinners are going to be the same. And the best of those that make a sin are those that repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. A question that always comes forth, what is the difference between tawbah and istighfar? What is the difference between tawbah and istighfar? And as a general principle, they will mean the exact same thing when mentioned in isolation. However, if tawbah and istighfar come together, then they will have two separate meanings. And those two separate meanings are that istighfar is the physical act on the tongue that you will say astaghfirullah, that I seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then tawbah will have a distinct meaning that will consist of four conditions. That will consist of four conditions. Number one is abandoning the sin. Is abandoning the sin. That once you know you're doing a sin, you abandon it and giving it up right away. Number two is making the intention never to come back to it. Making the intention never to come back to it. Number three Feeling some sort of remorse, feeling some sort of regret over the action that you did. And then number four, is that if you took any of the rights of the people, then those rights be returned as well. Then those rights be returned as well. Scholars mention two other conditions that are not directly related to it, but they're still worthy of being mentioned. Number one is the importance of sincerity that you're doing this act of tawbah for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not for the sake of your parents, not for the sake of the community, not for the sake of your family, but because it is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants. And then the second condition they mention as an additional point, a second condition they mention as an additional point, is that it should be done before the time of death, or before the sun rises from the west. Before the time of death, or before the sun rises from the west. And they mention this, is that in order for it to truly be sincere, it has to be done during that time. Where the veil of the Akhirah has still not been lifted. Whereas in the final moments of life, as the angel of death is taking your soul, the veil of the Akhirah gets uplifted. And people see the reality of this world for what it is for. And then at that time, they will want to make tawbah to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But by that time, it will be too late. By that time, it will be too late. Now the command of tawbah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The command of tawbah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Certain times, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will mention, repent to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَتُوبُوا إِلَى اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا أَيُّهَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ That all of us should repent back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in hopes that we may be successful. So this is one way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands people to make tawbah. Another way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us to make tawbah is by telling us how much He loves the people of tawbah. إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ التَّوَابِينَ وَيُحِبُّ الْمُتَطَحِرِينَ That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves those that repent and those that purify themselves. A third way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us to repent 
is how he talks about he is forgiving towards those that repent. That indeed I am forgiving towards those that repent. Now, when it comes to Tawbah, is this a matter of choice or is this a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? This is a spiritual question that doesn't get focused on enough. Tawbah is actually a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He doesn't give to all of His creation. Tawbah is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He doesn't give to all of His creation. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses someone to make tawbah, that is a sign of love from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that individual. That is a sign of love from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for that individual. And this is something that is very important to focus on because I want you to look at it this way. We all have mistakes, but not everyone will have their mistakes pointed out to them. Not everyone will have their mistakes pointed out to them. When a person is making tawbah, Allah has pointed out your mistake to you. So He's allowing you to change it with something better so you can improve yourself as well. On top of that, if there was any sin that was incurred, Allah will change your sin into a good deed. And that sin that you have committed will be completely wiped out and forgiven. And then you will become from those that are beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not only for your purity, but also due to the fact that you've done an act that is one of the most beloved acts to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How many times do you find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that He loves people that do so and so? It's not very common. In fact, maybe 10 to 12 categories you'll find in the Quran. That is what you'll find. The people of Tawbah is one of them. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guided you to recognize your mistake, then the genuine thing to do is to recognize your mistake and rectify it and to turn back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because that is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that should not be rejected. That is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that should not be rejected. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi he mentions in another hadith um, from Abdullah bin Umar radiallahu anhumah, Ya ayuhal nas, tubu ila Allah, fa inni atubu fil yawmi ilayhi mi'atu marrah. That, O oh mankind, repent to Allah, for indeed I repent to Allah in a single day a hundred times. I repent to Allah a hundred times. Now why is the Messenger of Allah وسلم, repenting back to Allah and seeking forgiveness from Allah a hundred times? This is a question that the scholars have looked at and it's been very perplexing. That we know that the Prophet had his previous and future sins forgiven, so what was the need to repent. So you will find that the majority of the scholars, they went to the opinion that the Prophet ﷺ is trying to teach the Ummah. He's trying to teach the Ummah that you know what? Get into the habit of making istighfar and seeking forgiveness from Allah ﷻ. Other scholars took a different approach. They said the Prophet ﷺ has a much higher level of conduct than the average human being. Where the average human being they will make tawbah for the sins that they commit. The Prophet ﷺ is making istighfar for the opportunities of goodness that he missed out or for the makruh that he may have fallen into. That is what the Prophet ﷺ is seeking forgiveness for a hundred times a day. And this shows us again that we should not become complacent with our faith and should always strive to become higher and better. 
that yes, the time is right now, we're seeking forgiveness for our sins. But inshallah, we want to hope to achieve a time where we even seek forgiveness that, Oh Allah, forgive me for not praying my sunnah prayers. Oh Allah, forgive me for not giving charity when I was able to give charity. Oh Allah, forgive me for not helping someone out when I was able to help them out. Oh Allah, forgive me for not pardoning and forgiving when I was able to pardon and to forgive. So all of those good opportunities that we miss out on, you seek forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Due to the fact that you know how beloved that is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How beloved that is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So now we'll do another quick group activity. What were the six conditions of tawbah that the scholars mentioned? What are the six conditions of tawbah that the scholars mentioned? Let's start off with our sisters this time. Can we get one of the conditions of tawbah from our sisters? Yeah, go ahead. Sincerity for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Excellent. From the brothers? Abandon the sin. That's number two. Go back to our sisters. Can we get a second one? Intention not to do it again. You're adamant not to return to it again. That was number three. What's number four? You're going to say the same thing? So if you've taken the rights of someone, you give their rights back to them. You took someone's money, return their money. You backbit someone, then you mention good about that in that same gathering, and you apologize to them for having backbitten them. So you return the rights of the people. Okay, number five, back to our sisters. In terms of the way that we feel, what should we be feeling? Remorse and regret over the act that you did. Remorse and regret over the act that you did. That is number four. Number five. Actually, repenting to Allah. Praying to Allah. That's not one of the conditions that I mentioned. But you, I'll, I'll address your point in a second though. Before death, before the sun rises from the west. Before the sun rises from the west. So sincerity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala abandoning the sin, making the intention not to do it again, feeling remorse and regret. If you took someone's right, you return their right to them, and then it has to be done before death or before the sun rises from the west. So this is the same thing that the brother was mentioning, doing a good deed to wipe out the bad deed. So in the hadith of Mu'adh, the Prophet tells him that do a good deed to wipe it out. And then also in the Quran, in Surah Hud, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Inna al-hasanat yudhibna sayyat, that the good deeds wipe the bad deeds away. The good deeds wipe the bad deeds away. Is that something virtuous to do? Or is that actually a condition of tawbah? And the answer to that is that that is something virtuous to do. It is not a condition of your tawbah that you must do a good deed to wipe out the bad deed. In fact, you abandoning the sin and making the intention not to do it again is the good deed within of itself. However, if a person chooses to give sadaqah or to pray to rak'ahs, then this is something virtuous and noble to do. Jazakumullah khairan for that reminder. With that having said, we'll move on to the last hadith. An Anasin radiallahu anhu qal, qala Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, as-samtu hikamun wa qalilun fa'iluh. Akhrajahu al-bayhaqi fi shu'b bi sanadin da'if so Anas radiallahu anhu, he narrates from the Prophet that the Prophet says, silence is wisdom and there are very few people that actually do it. This was reported by Imam al-Bayhaqi in his book, Shu'b al-Iman, 
with a weak chain of narration, with a weak chain of narration. And what is authentic is that rather than this being a hadith of the Prophet this is the statement of Luqman al-Hakim. This is the statement of Luqman al-Hakim. So number one, over here again, it's clearly pointed out that the hadith is weak and it should not be attributed to the Prophet And number two, here we also see that you're allowed to extract benefit even from the statements of other than the Prophet So what we will get into, who was Luqman al-Hakim? Who was Luqman al-Hakim? If you look in the Quran, in the 30s of the surahs, you'll find the surah of Luqman. And there's a portion in this surah where Luqman is giving advice to his son. And this is a beautiful advice that every parent you know, should share with their child. And this shows true love and true commitment and true wanting of, of khair for your children. So Luqman was a wise man from the people of the past. And it has been different. Was he actually a prophet of Allah or was he not? The majority of scholars were of the opinion that he was not a prophet. And that seems to be closer to the truth. He was an individual that was a carpenter or a, a shepherd by profession. He was originally from Habash, which is modern day Eritrea. And his statements were just naturally filled with wisdom. His statements were just naturally filled with wisdom. So this is something that you'll find often quoted, that this was a statement of Luqman because he was a, a very, very wise man. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loved his statements and his advice so much that he preserved it for us in the Qur'an. He preserved it for us in the Qur'an. So now clearly this is not found in the Qur'an. So where would this advice of Luqman come from? And this is where these narrations come from the Israeliyat. That this is found in the books of the Christians and the Jews. And here as we can see the scholars of the past didn't have an issue and narrating those uh, wisdoms to us, as long as it didn't contradict anything in our Sharia. As long as it didn't contradict anything in our Sharia. So what we'll look at right now, what is the difference in the Arabic language between a sukut and a samt? What is the difference between these two? Samt in the Arabic language is referring to that which you refrain from evil or bad. So when you control your tongue from saying something evil or bad. Whereas sukut is to remain absolutely silent. Sukut is to remain absolutely silent. So sukut is more general and asamt becomes more specific. Now what did the Prophet ﷺ actually advise us with? He advises us with asamt. مَنْ كَانَ يُؤْمِنُ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ فَلْيَقُلْ خَيْرًا أَوْ لِيَصْمُتْ that whoever believes in Allah in the last day should speak that which is good or remain silent. So assumpt is to refrain from that which is evil and therefore a person will only speak good. So the Prophet ﷺ is advising us over here, speak that which is good or remain silent. Now why did the Prophet ﷺ again pay so much attention to the way that we speak? What are, why are these guidelines there? Again, our speech has an impact on the state of our heart. Our speech has an impact on the state of our heart. And when we speak without thinking, when we speak out of emotion, when we speak without contemplating, then we will end up saying things which we will later regret. These can be curse words, these can be backbiting, this can be slander, this can be gossip, this can be you know, lies. All of those categories fall under this. 
And what we learn from that is that there should be a process before we speak. There should be a process before we speak. Because all of those actions will place a dot on the heart. All of those actions will place a dot on the heart. Now what is the process? It's done. So what is the process that an individual should go through before they speak? Four processes. And let's try to you know, reflect on these and implement them inshallah. Number one is that we should only speak when there's a benefit. Either to promote some sort of good or to avoid some sort of evil. So only speak when there's a need to speak. If there's no need to speak, then don't speak. Number two is that only speak to the level of necessity and not beyond that. So you recognize, okay, I need to speak in this situation because of some good or for some evil. Now only speak to that degree and do not go beyond that. Number three is that making sure you're speaking at the appropriate time. Not every time is an opportune time to speak, but only speak at a time when it is opportune. And then number four, when you do speak, making sure you're choosing the best words, making sure you're choosing the best words. Now, this is the theoretical practice of, of what should be done, that you know, only speak when it's a, a need to speak, making sure you control how much you speak and not going beyond that. Making sure that it's at its appropriate time, you're not interrupting anyone, you're not speaking to someone during the time of hardship or distress. Uh, and then number four, is that cho choosing the most appropriate words. So there's certain words that you know, just aren't appropriate for that situation or the person that you're speaking to. Right? So there should be a higher level of respect for our elders, for our parents, for our scholars and teachers and things like that. So you want to speak to everyone the same way. But the psychological issue or component behind this is that as human beings, the human capacity of desire to speak, it starts off at about 10,000 words. The average male will have a desire to speak 10 to 12,000 words per day. And if we don't communicate those 10 to 12,000 words, there's a sense of unfulfillment and a sense of, of emptiness. For our female counterparts, that threshold is a bit higher. And that will be between 15 to 20,000 words. Some studies show even higher, 20 to 25,000 words. Right? So that threshold is higher. So how do we go about doing that? So the focus and emphasis over here is not on speaking. Right? Nowhere in the Sharia does it say, don't speak. But the guideline of the Sharia is that if you are going to speak, make it beneficial speech. So if you have this desire inside of you that you need to speak and you need to talk, always check your intention. And this is such an important thing that, you know, we are allowed to talk to our, about our problems to other human beings. We are allowed to do that. But it should never be about tarnishing someone's reputation. It should always be about, hey, I'm having this problem. What advice do you have for me in this situation? And for the sake of getting that advice, now it becomes permissible for you to share your problems and talk about your situation in detail. So always look at the intention over there. And then number two is always make sure that you're tying this somehow, some way, back to Allah, back to the deen, back to the Qur'an, anything that you can, just to make it beneficial somehow in the greater scheme of things. And that is why anytime we have a gathering, whether it be for dinner, whether it be at someone's house, whether it be over tea, make it a habit, not a formality, make it a habit that you're consciously discussing something religious, some sort of benefit, something that you learned in the khutbah. Right? What is something that you learned in the khutbah? Share that with the gathering. Or something new that you've read. Share that in the gathering. Something beneficial. 
to make sure that the conversation is not void of benefit. Now I feel that Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar concluded with this hadith in particular to show us that perhaps this is one of the most difficult levels of zuhud. The most difficult, one of the most difficult levels of zuhud is to control what you say. And that is why Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar is concluding with that. That if you are able to fix your speech and to control what you say and to monitor what you say, then you would have achieved you know, uh, a great victory at that time. Because it requires a lot of discipline, it requires a lot of straight, restraint. That we live in a day and age where we're encouraged to express ourselves to our fullest capacity in whatever way possible. Good or bad, vulgar or non-vulgar, just express yourself. Whereas the Sharia doesn't recommend that. The Sharia recommends express yourself within the guidelines of the Sharia. And again that issue of balance comes up where you have these extreme ascetics that will go on fasting from speaking. Fasting from speaking is not something that is a part of our Sharia. You do not find that the Prophet ﷺ spent three days in silence or ten days in silence. That wasn't the case. But the issue of balance is also important that the believer should speak that which is good or remain silent. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Anything that I've said that is good is from Allah alone. Anything that is incorrect is from myself and shaitan. Um, again, the objective behind this chapter was to make sure that we reframe the way that we think. And to reframe the way that we think into getting closer to Allah, getting closer to Jannah, getting closer to what Allah loves and desires. So I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, accepts from us what we've done and gives us the tawfiq to, to think like that so that we can make our akhirah priority over our dunya. Allahumma ameen. With that said, inshallah, uh, for the next two weeks what we will be doing is reflections on Suratul Hujarat. So what I found over here is that this was uh, a very good introduction to the topic of, of manners. Like it talks about etiquette and characteristics. And now we want to look at a similar subject from the Qur'an as well. So inshallah for the next two weeks we'll be talking about uh, akhlaq and manners from the Qur'anic perspective. As we'll learn next week, Surah Al-Hujarat was known as the Surah of Manners and we'll find out why. Jazakumullah khairan for attending. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa ant. Astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.